Welcome to another edition of The George Sanders Show. Today you're going to double your fun with us as we uh, talk about two films with two in the title. We're going to talk about two English girls from Francois Truffaut and two lovers, James Gray's film from 2008. Uh, we will also be discussing our Cinema Central picks for Best Love Triangle as well as The Death of the Blockbuster. With me as always is Sean Gilman. Hi, Sean. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Sean's very tired this week. His family's in town, so he may pass out in the middle of this show. Yeah. <laughs> he might be passed out now. We're not, really, we're not quite sure. But anyway, without further ado, let's get to our discussion of the first film, Two Lovers. You won't come in for a bit? Yeah, maybe just... That'd be great. Just until he calms down, maybe. I don't want like, everybody to call the cops. Yeah, I'm on yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello. Hi. Oh, mom, this is Michelle. She's. I'm, I'm your neighbor. Hello, neighbor. Leonard, your dad just came home. We're going to have Chinese food. Yeah, well, my parents are just trying to protect all their, you know, designer clothes and shit. From what? Moth. Moth. <laughs> right. Right, right. Moth. <laughs> of course. So, you, you're new here in the building? Yeah, I just moved in last week. Oh, cool. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks. Okay, that was a clip from Two Lovers. That was Gwyneth Paltrow uh, being confused by a dreidel. Uh, this is a film that's... Been there. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, this is a film that came out uh, in 2008 from director James Gray, who also worked with uh, its star Joaquin Phoenix on a number of films, including We Own the Night uh, and a few others. Another one with Mark Wahlberg, too. What's the other one called? Uh, the Yards. The Yards, right. Um... A little history from me, as I tend to do on this show. Uh, I avoided this film for a long, long time uh, because it was produced and released by Magnolia, uh, which is owned by Mark Cuban, which isn't a bad thing. But working at a landmark theater, which was also owned by Mark Cuban, uh, whenever a Magnolia film would come out, they would play the trailer on every single film possible. I mean, they would play it on... Uh, the latest Pixar movie or whatever. <laughs> right, and we worked in a 10-screen theater, so, so running the movies, we saw the same trailer 20 times a day. And to top it off, not only did we see the trailer for Two Lovers uh, about a zillion times, but uh, clips from the film were also used in an ad that played for probably a year and a half uh, promoting HDNet, which is a cable channel also owned by Mark Cuban. And so I've seen Gwyneth Paltrow smiling on a subway, probably about 2,000 times in my life. And so I was just so exhausted by all of this that I avoided this film uh, completely. You weren't the only one. I, I wasn't. It really didn't go anywhere. Uh, as a lot of Magnolia films don't because they play at a landmark. And, and Yeah, I think there are other reasons why people avoided Two Lovers, not just the, <laughs> the, uh, the Magnolia connection. Well, but. part of it, I think we can talk about this in a little bit, maybe, um, 
yeah, was when he was promoting the film, Joaquin Phoenix was doing his uh, I'm still here shtick. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. Okay, first. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, anyway, let's talk about the set, Okay, let's so set, set up what the movie is. Okay, <laughs> so Two Lovers is a story about a kind of unhinged, depressed uh, young man played by Joaquin Phoenix who um, has moved back in with his parents um, after his marriage, or his, uh, excuse me, impending wedding has been uh, pushed canceled. aside. Yeah, it's been canceled, cut off for a reason we find out later in the film. Uh, and in quick succession, he meets two women. Uh, the first is played by Vanessa Shaw, who is a uh, family friend, kind of, or her father and his father are working together. On She's a, a nice Jewish girl. She's a nice Jewish girl. She's very sweet, warm, uh, kind-hearted, and, and maternal. And maternal. Uh, and then Joaquin Phoenix also meets uh, his new neighbor in their apartment building, um, a kind of flighty, impulsive woman uh, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who is in a relationship uh, as she's the mistress to a uh, a lawyer played by Elias Coteus, who, which we all, I'm sure, as soon as you hear Elias Coteus's name, you think Teenage K- Mutant Ninja Turtles. Casey Jones and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> I love me some Elias Coteus. Yeah. Anywho, the film basically charts uh, Phoenix's. Uh, journey, you know, ping-ponging between these women. Uh, um, obviously, uh, certain people, his parents want him to be with Vanessa Shaw's character, but and she likes him, but he doesn't really care for her that much. He's pretty cold to her, uh, and he prefers Paltrow, even though she's erratic and kind of uh, unstable. So anyway, Sean, you've seen this film a number of times. Yeah, this is my third time watching it, I believe. Does it hold up for you? Yes. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's great to hear. Yeah, I think I, you know, I was one of the few people who saw it when it was when it had first come out, and and uh, it it had a, a cult following right away of, of certain critics who were were really in favor of it, and and I recall that uh, Matt Singer, host of the uh, the Film Spotting SVU podcast, uh, was adamant that it was the best film of the year. And the hosts of Film Spotting at the time kept making fun of him for suggesting that this Gwyneth Paltrow romantic drama could possibly be the best movie of the year. Mm-hmm. And it really was one of the best movies of the year. I still don't know if uh, if Adam is, has actually seen it yet <laughs> or just made fun of it. But, uh, no, it, uh, five years later, it, it continues to be a, a really terrific movie. Yeah, I, I, I'm kicking myself for avoiding it for so long because I... I really, really responded to it. I, I enjoyed it immensely, um, and I heard all the hoopla. And I did, I did see the the people listing it um, as such a great film and stuff. And I, you know, I, and I'm kicking myself that I had all these associations with it. Well, I'm actually, in a way, I'm glad I did, you know, watch it later because I could separate it from all that stuff. Um, and what I like about this film is it's it's incredibly assured. Um, you know, the filmmaking, in, you know, James. Gray knows exactly what he's trying to get across. He doesn't try to do anything flashy. He doesn't try to um, expand the story beyond these few characters. He doesn't, you know, um, and it's a very adult, mature film. You know, uh, people bemoan nowadays how every movie is marketed and created uh, solely for 14-year-old boys. And for the most part, that's true, you know. There are, but you always hear people say, "How come they don't make smart, intelligent adult films anymore?" 
and they do. You know, you just got to kind of seek them out. And this, I think, is a very mature film, uh, even though the characters themselves are not very mature. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix uh, makes some pretty rash decisions, and well, Gwyneth Paltrow certainly is not a, a well uh, a well adjusted grown-up woman. No, she is not. And that's why... Another thing that I find interesting about this film is it's one of those films where, at least for me, I had a, you know, a a very strong opinion from the get-go of who he should be with and who he should be spending his time with. Um, And even when he does things that are against what I want him to do and he does things that I think are generally pretty stupid... um, it's not in an annoying way when you're watching it. You're you're still riveted to it. You're not just like, what a dumb decision. Well, I think I think uh, he's very sympathetic. You can you can very much understand why he he chases after this this ideal, you know, blonde non-Jewish woman as kind of a, an escape from his family. But he still feels uh, conflicted. Like he. He likes his mom and he likes his parents mm-hmm. and, and he has this like really warm, supportive home that he um, nonetheless really wants to escape from. And Gwyneth Paltrow is like this, this ideal of this, uh, of uh, a whole other world that he can get away, away to. And, and at the end of the film, their, their plan is to run away to San Francisco, which is like the opposite of, of cold, you know, Brooklyn, where it's all green and gray all the time can go to sunny California. Uh, where sneakers was shot. Where sneakers <laughs> was shot. And where, where all the people are blonde. Yes, like me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, you, can, you can see why he's doing these things. It's not um, totally irrational. You know, he's, and he's a damaged individual. You know, he's sort of on the rebound from his, you know, the dissolution of his engagement and all of those things. And he's suicidal or... You know, we see him at the beginning of the film throwing himself into. Uh, yeah, he leaps into the bay, and uh, but he comes back. He does. He uh, he he isn't like pulled out of the water. Like he he decides, ah, I'd rather live. Yeah, um, and later we see you know he's having a meal with uh, Shah's character, and he's got cuts on his uh, wrist. You know, and so showing that you know he he's been through a lot, and he's he's an emotional person. Um, but he also you know he's not just a sad sack. You know, you see, you see him flirting with uh, the seamstress at the dry cleaners and he's really charming. It's very understandable why both women like him. Um, And they like him for different reasons. Vanessa Shaw like sees him as this damaged figure that she can take care of. Mm -hmm. She says that's actually the the phrase that she uses is, is, I want to take care of you. And her, her affection for him is very maternal. He has like this kind of pathetic quality that she finds endearing. Whereas, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow sees him as as a friend, as someone who, you know, puts her on a pedestal, and she likes being idealized by this guy who is, you know, he's kind of charming and funny and, and dopey. And well, he's also, but he's also really calculating and smart. Like wh- the way he uh, gets into Paltrow's graces, you know. I mean, I, I don't know if it's necessarily smart, but he, you know. He he really works hard at you know he tra- he trails her and and pretends right. he, like they just he, ran into he each like other. He like accidentally runs into you know, her. and he does things you know when they go out on their night on the town where he's obviously um, playing a role to her. Um, yeah, well, he's trying to to show off, which yes. is what young men do around pretty women. <laughs> do they? 
That's what I keep forgetting. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, absolutely. And his character, you know, there's, there's, there are layers to this character. And let's talk about Joaquin Phoenix. I think he's really terrific in this movie. And I think the actor he reminded me most of, and this is going to be sacrilegious to say this, is, is James Dean. And the, the image we have of James Dean comes from, from movie posters, and he's like this ideal of like 1950s cool. But if you have actually seen James Dean movies, that is not his character at all. Mm-hmm. His, his character is our, uh, in his three big movies, uh, Giant, Trouble Without Cause, and, and East of Eden, are, are very kind of you know, conflicted and tormented and, and uh, even you know, whiny at times figures. They're really, uh, they're not you know, kind of a Marlon Brando in the wild one, just, just really cool and stoic figures. They're very emotional and they're very, you know, traumatized by yeah, the world around them. They're damaged. Yeah, and and Joaquin Phoenix has that that similar quality in this movie. He's the way he appears damaged seems cool. Yes, I, I agree. I, I, that's what makes it so riveting to see. I'm actually going to go out on an even uh, longer limb on this and and say that Joaquin Phoenix might possibly be my favorite. Uh, American actor working today. I think he's really good um, in this and in particular, you know, in The Master. Uh, yeah, he's great in The Master. He's fantastic in The Master. Uh, you know, he, he Which is another show. kind of uh, performance where he's, he's playing a very damaged figure that, that puts on like a, a front of, of charm and cool and, and he's kind of a pathetic guy, but you see why people would like him. Yeah, uh, although I don't... I think these are very different performances. Well, physically, they're very different. Yeah. Um, but yes, the, the, the germ of the character is the same. Um, but yeah, he, I can't think of anybody that does this kind of thing currently um, better than Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and I'm actually really looking forward to He's got a few things coming up. Uh, he's working with P.T. Anderson again on an adaptation of uh, Pinchon's Inherent Vice. Uh, he's going to be the main sure. character, which is... I, have you read the book? No. It's, it's pretty good. It's a shaggy I read, I read the first 10 pages of Gravity's Rainbow a couple of times. <laughs> so have I. <laughs> um, it's, I think that's going to be fun. And then he's also in Spike Jones's uh, Her, which is coming, I think, coming out at the end of the year. And it's he falls in love with an operating system. Yeah, I, Joaquin Phoenix is a terrific actor, yet I, I still um, think his performance in Gladiator is one of the worst things I've ever seen in a movie. See, I've never seen Gladiator. So, okay. you know, I think... I've, I've seen a number of things he's in. I've seen Walk the Line. I think he's very good in a very mediocre yeah, I, movie. I think we can, at this point we can safely blame uh, the Gladiator performance on Ridley Scott. Let's we can blame a lot of things on Ridley Scott at this yeah. point. Um, yeah, uh, I've also I've also seen Joaquin Phoenix in Disney's uh, Brother Bear, where he <laughs> voices the Brother Bear. <laughs> he's in uh, To Die For with Nicole Kidman. Ah, yes, that's one of his, that was one of his uh, first, first big movies. Yeah. Um, so he's, well, he's he's very good in that, um, but. The, the flip side of Joaquin Phoenix's great performance in this film is his disastrous performance on the press tour for the movie, yes. where he was ostensibly going out marketing two lovers and trying to sell it to the public at large. Because uh, while, you know, it wasn't a big mainstream Hollywood movie, it, it did have, you know, it, it had Joaquin Phoenix in it coming off of his uh, Oscar nomination for Walk the Line. It had Gwyneth Paltrow, who's a big star. And it should have been, you know, a moderate-sized hit. But Joaquin Phoenix's antics in promoting the film 
basically killed it. Absolutely. I, I agree completely. Uh, the, it looks like there's no, you know, bad blood between him and Grey, though, because they're working again yeah, I think I think, I think Gray kind of understood the the uh, meta art project that that Phoenix was going on was uh, was performing for. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that by the way? No, me neither. <laughs> yeah, it just looked really obnoxious. Yes, it does. But, um, but that uh, combined with the the terrible title, I think, doomed the the movie to to not find an audience because just at the time that. You're trying. You want to take Walking Phoenix seriously as a romantic lead sure. in this in the serious grown-up drama. He's acting like a buffoon on the David Letterman show. Yeah, buffoon is a good word. Another good word is uh, that what separates this from um, a lot of contemporary characterizations of men, current men. You know, a lot, a lot of films, you know, comedies and dramas alike. Um, American films show these kind of stunted men in one way or another, and a lot of them are really petulant and, and grating and annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this movie, he's, like we said, I mean, he's he's kind of emasculated and he's, you know, I keep saying damaged. I don't know why I'm going to keep saying damaged. But, you know, he, he plays a character that kind of could fit into that lineage of, of these current men, but he doesn't have that petulant nature to him in this. He doesn't... He doesn't uh... He doesn't feel sorry for himself. He, right. doesn't, he doesn't ask for the audience's sympathy. Like he, he, he is broken, but he, it's not. Oh, I'm broken. I need someone to fix me. He's like, yeah, that sucked. I'm getting on with my life and and going after the the pretty blonde lady. Yeah. Well, let's talk about. And this is where it gets really spoiler heavy here. Uh, let's talk about the ending of this film because the ending to me was very shocking, surprising. Um, it, it made sense, uh, but it's it's an uncomfortable ending because what happens is he he and Paltrow kind of consummate their relationship on the roof. Uh, right. She she breaks up with Elias Cotius, uh, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix sees this as his opportunity to move in, despite the fact that he's in this relationship with with Vanessa Shaw. Right. Uh, and they agree to run away to San Francisco together. So, so Phoenix sneaks out of his mother's uh, New Year's, New Year's Eve, Eve party and waits for Gwyneth in the, in the courtyard. And she comes up and says that Elias Cotius left his family for her, so now she has to go with him. Uh, and Joaquin Phoenix is very sad. He goes to the beach. He throws away the, the engagement ring that he had purchased for Gwyneth. Uh, and then he changes his mind. <laughs> he goes he back. Picks up, he picks up the ring and he gives it to Vanessa Shaw. And he's, you know, they're going to get married and he's going to live the same life that his father lived. And it's, yeah, it's such a horrible thing to see. I mean, to Vanessa Shaw and everybody around him, except for his mother who saw him sneak off. And and, and Isabella Rossellini plays plays his mother and she's she is fantastic. She's phenomenal. I'll, most of the best moments in the film involve Isabel Rossellini in one way or the other. She's really wonderful. Uh, when she's uh, kind of pestering him when he's buying the ticket for the flight, you know, yeah. and she's in the background, do you need help with that? And <laughs> No, mom, I'm just, you know. Just looking something up just, on the internet. You know, and she she spies on him, you know, in his room and stuff. And um, Yeah, she, like, will, like, peek under the, the crack under the, the door of his room and, like, make sure making sure everything's okay. Yeah. And, and then they have the that great scene at the at the end where she sees him sneak out and 
you know, is just kind of heartbroken that he's running away from her. But, you know, she's like, you know, this is your home. You're always welcome here and lets him go. That that scene in particular is the is the thing that really resonated with me where, you know, it's that unconditional love, you know, mm-hmm. and she she knows he's totally fucking things up <laughs> in a way. But she's like, it's your life. You need to be happy. Whatever you do is fine. Well, the, the scene is, is so powerful, not just because of, of Rossellini and Phoenix's performances, but it's also because that James Gray has, has step-by-step built this, this realistic world that the characters live in. Like, it's, it's so specific to a, a certain place and a certain, you know, subculture of, of Jewish immigrants in New York. Well, that's what, and that's what I mean when I said, like, in the confidence in the filmmaking, he doesn't try and expand the, the world. He just, this is what he's filming, and this is, you know... But it's it's such an insular world, and mm-hmm. it, and it's it, it feels so real. Like even when he uh, when he jumps off the bay and is rescued by strangers, he gets recognized. He's like, "Isn't that the guy that works with the dry cleaner?" Right, right. Uh, and it's um, but when he goes out with Gwyneth, they go into Manhattan. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a diff- it's literally a different world mm-hmm. than the little uh, Brighton Beach community. Uh, which is, uh, it's the same community where I think uh, all of Gray's films are, are set. I've only seen uh, Little Odessa, which is his first one, with, with Tim Roth, but it's also in that same... You haven't seen the Marky Mark ones? I haven't seen the Marky Mark ones. Uh, I'm kind of intrigued by them now, after, after seeing yeah, this. I, I, I bought uh, the We Own the Night DVD a while ago, I just haven't watched it yet. Yeah. Anyway, because, because he's, he's developed this, this world as, as an actual place, it actually does feel like a home that he is going away from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of abandoning that security Absolutely. for this, this impossible dream of a woman. Yeah. And when he comes back and he's, he's in that house in the final scene and the, the party's going on around him and he goes up and he proposes uh, to Vanessa Shaw's character... And like I said, it was so shocking and, and you just, you're just like, oh, you were such a jerk. <laughs> I because, you don't feel that way? I don't know. I, I understand, you know, his attraction to, to both women and I think he'll be much happier with Vanessa Shaw than he ever would have been with Gwyneth Paltrow. Absolutely. No, I think, I think, well, like I said earlier, when when the movie starts and you and you see the situation at hand and the two women he's you know torn between, all of my sympathy lies with Vanessa Shaw. Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, is a bad influence on him. You know, it's not going to end well. If they had gone to San Francisco, they would have you know yeah. killed each other within a week. Um, and absolutely, Vanessa Shaw would be is is the girl for him, uh, but. The fact that she's so trusting and so uh, maternal to him, and and she, you know, she accepts him for who he is and all this stuff. To see him doing all these things behind her back, kind of, you know, gets you steamed. And then to see him go to her as the um, the one he can get at the end because he can't get the other one, and just be like, okay, this is fine. It seems so unfair to her because she deserves better than that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can see that. I mean, he's not he's not the greatest guy, but I, it seems to me that if he were to tell her that, hey, by the way, there was this blonde lady that I really liked that I was about to run away with that I was about two to minutes run away before with, I proposed to you, I she's so she's so sweet and she's so motherly. I suspect she would forgive him. 
I suspect so too, but that still doesn't mean that she deserves that. Yeah, but I mean, don't you do you think that she will be happy with him? Well, it depends if he truly starts to dedicate himself to her. You know, if, if he starts philandering, you know, on the side like you know, uh, Elias Codius. Yeah, like he does. I, I don't really see that that happening. I, I, you see, don't think I that, see it as, as kind of like a, a final choice. He's like, okay, I, this is the life I'm going to live. I think it's a little more open-ended than that because I can see him... I mean, I, th I think the fact that it comes so quickly after he's packed and ready to go that, you know, he, he could run into another Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, this, this is his thought process when he's standing, you know, staring at the beach, you know. Should I run into the ocean and kill myself? What what should I do? And and he sees the the glove this this glove that Vanessa Shaw has has bought for him, which isn't a very romantic gift. It's a it's a practical. It's gift. a very. Wants, I was thinking that too. She she wants to take care of him. She yes. doesn't want his hands to be cold. Gwyneth Paltrow would never give him gloves. No, no. So he sees this glove, and he you know I think he he comes to this realization that he's been ignoring this much more much more attainable, but also more realistic and more valuable kind of of relationship and kind of love. I agree with you completely. However, I don't think that the realization he comes to is necessarily definitive for that character. To, having seen all of the actions he's made throughout the film prior to that, I can easily see him a year from now uh, you know, doing the exact same thing. That being said, the movie leaves it as such, and you know they, they are planning to, to wed, and he is going to take over this... Laundra, laundromat or dry cleaning business, excuse me, um, and settle down and, like you said, live the life that his parents have wanted for him. Uh, even though he still, I don't think, fits in that world completely. No, I, I don't think I don't think he'll ever fit in any world completely. Uh, what did you think about the uh, the the color scheme of the film? It's it's very stylized. the The interiors are very yellow, and the exteriors are very green. Yeah, it's it's a very um, go gorgeous film to look at. That you know, it's not. I don't think it's flashy. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily call attention to itself. But I think um, it ties in with what you were saying about these these worlds and how deep and real they feel. Is that you know this look and it goes into even just the um, in the design of the um, the sets or you know the the apartments. You know, they feel lived in. Yeah, um, that that apartment set for. Uh, Phoenix's parents is, is just a great. It's fantastic. Set. You know every detail. The, the pictures on the wall, the uh, the little knickknacks, the dreidel on the mm -hmm. on the shelf, and and Phoenix's room with his movie posters and DVDs. Yeah, it's all a mess, and and it, it, yeah, it doesn't feel uh, like a spontaneous mess. It doesn't feel like you know someone came in and just threw stuff around right before mm -hmm. they filmed. It feels like this is the room he grew up in, and all yeah. you know this stuff, um, and then. The, and then there is the the contrast between the exterior shots, especially when he goes out with Paltrow to like the nightclub or when they go to dinner um, and they go to the opera and stuff. It's a much more, it's a colder world. It's a starker world. Um, it's more realistically colored also. Absolutely. Uh, Phoenix, in, in addition to working at First Father as a dry cleaner, is a photographer and he takes black and white photographs and they're very, they're very artsy. And somehow that, must relate to the the stylized colors that Gray uses in the film. The, like Phoenix sees things in black and white, like stark choices between Paltrow and Shaw. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I don't have a fully worked out theory of, of that. But it's, it's 
it seems like it means something to me. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I don't disagree. Uh, I also have nothing to say about it. <laughs> uh, the, the, the last thing I have to say is, is this is a, an adaptation of a short story by, uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky, and it's one that's been filmed a lot. Uh, uh, Robert Poisson uh, directed an adaptation of it, which I haven't seen, called Four Nights of a Dreamer. Um, one I have seen is Lucino Visconti's uh, 1957 adaptation called, uh, called White Nights, which was the name of the story also. And uh, Marcello Mastriani plays the, the Joaquin Phoenix part, and he's, you know, similar torn between a, a pretty blonde woman and a more attainable woman. The, the striking thing about it to me is, is there's this uh, scene in the middle of the movie where Joaquin Phoenix goes out uh, to a club with Gwyneth Paltrow, and, and she and her, her girlfriends are making fun. We're like, are you going to dance? And he's like, oh, if I have to. And then he gets onto the floor and he does like this weird, like great dancing. He busts a move. Kind of thing. Yeah. It's, and it's pretty hilarious. There's the same scene is in the 1957 movie, but you know, it's set 50 years, 60 years earlier, uh-huh. 50 years earlier. Uh, so when they go to a club, it's like a, a like an early rock and roll club and Marcello Mastriani just does this hilarious rock and roll dance that, that sounds amazing it has to be seen to be believed I, so I, I gotta check this I out I would recommend seeing the movie it's a beautiful movie with like these really you know elaborate um, uh, very artificial sets with really pretty snow and yeah well that's a good trade off Mastriani Phoenix I can see it yeah yeah, Mastriani not, not so much like the, the damaged vulnerable kind of hero he's more well, it was a different world. Yeah, he's he's much cooler, but even but even then, he's more of a naive figure. Like he's not the uh, the Fellini Mastriani you get in La Dolce Vita or or Eight and a Half, where he's like, you know, cynical. And mm-hmm. it's it's a much more more open performance from him. Interesting. Yeah, I should check that out. With that, that concludes our discussion of two lovers uh, today. We are going to be listening to some selections from. Uh, a band of twins, the Meat Puppets, tying in with our two theme. Uh, and not only is it a band of twins, both songs have the word two in the title. So here is the song, Two Rivers, from the Meat Puppets. And now it is time on the George Sanders Show for the news of the week. And as far as we know, there really hasn't been any. So, Mike, let's talk about Blockbuster. What's, <laughs> yeah, what's it's on more, your mind? It's more news of the summer, I guess. But, there, yeah, there have been... 
proliferation of articles and speculation about the death of the blockbuster because this year in particular there have been a number of uh, big budget tentpole films that have uh, underperformed uh, in, in, to say it nicely <laughs> or they've bombed to, to put it more bluntly uh, The Lone Ranger is probably the biggest one on that list but it also includes stuff like Pacific Rim which didn't really open as big as they thought it would and uh, a number of other movies that I don't really care about <laughs> at all. The Star Trek movie. Star Trek movie didn't do as well either, you know, even Man of Steel, which, you know, did decent business, didn't do, you know, boffo like they expected. Um, and on the flip side of that is that there have been a number of low-budget films, uh, you know, these little uh, films like The Conjuring, I believe, did really well, surprisingly well. Um, That's not an, that unusual. A small horror movie usually usually does pretty well in, in, during the summer. Yeah, but it, it seems like uh, when it trounces something, when it opens number one, and something like you know, what was that? What was that big like magician movie with the the all star cast? Oh yeah, now you see me. Yeah, yeah, that did like I think it recouped its budget in its first two days or something like that. Really? I don't know. I'm ta- I'm talking out of my ass here. I don't really know what's going on. Uh, maybe I should learn a little bit more about what I'm saying before we talk about it. But um, no, I mean I. I used to follow all the the box office stuff on a on a weekly basis, but uh, since I've not been working in the movie theater industry for the last two years, I really haven't paid much attention to it. And uh, the blockbusters that I do end up seeing, I, I usually just end up seeing on on like a streaming when they come out streaming on Netflix like six months later. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you and I are both, you know. We're both snobs to a degree, but, you know, we're not opposed to blockbusters, but we also don't go out of our way to see everything that comes down the pipeline. You know, um, I've seen this summer, the, the two that I've seen where I saw the Star Trek sequel, which is enjoyable, and then I saw The Lone Ranger, which uh, is, it is the mess that uh, most people are saying it is. Uh, there are some defenders out there, including some uh, friends of ours, <laughs> who, who think it's a, a hidden masterpiece or something like that, and... Uh, it's it's got potential, but it's really squandered. Um, the the only one I've seen is The Great Gatsby. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> which was uh, which was okay. You know, it was you know it was very Baz Luhrmann, but um, uh, well, but the issue I, I really I just I just don't make it out to the multiplex much. I've got a a, a four month old kid, and and it makes it hard to 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 go out. Well, but are you getting? Do you get excited about these kinds of pictures? I mean, unless no, but, it's... but I, I think I think like most people, I I enjoy going to the multiplex and sitting in the theater and watching the explosions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no problem with that. I, I I would really like to see Pacific Rim or Star Trek. I just haven't had the the chance to to get out of the house and and go down there. Well, so the question right now is is it you know there's been this talk you know George Lucas and Steven Spielberg had this kind of state of the union address where they said the film industry is crumbling um, and you know it's it's not going to exist in ten years or whatever they said and and earlier in the year Steven Soderbergh had a thing you know at the San Francisco uh, Film Festival where he talked about all the problems getting financing for films, you know, his smaller pictures that he wants to do and stuff. Because studios are pouring all of this money into these few big tentpole movies that are supposed to make a billion dollars upon release. And what we're seeing at least this year is that that's not necessarily the case. These 
you know, overly hyped films are kind of dying with a whimper. Um, my question to you is, is that a bad thing? Because to me, it seems like it's just the bubble bursting and we will start to see more interesting films coming through the pipeline and getting financed because these kind of left field things like Now You See Me um, and all these other things, which are made for a fraction of the budget of something like The Avengers, which, you know, I enjoy The Avengers just fine and I'm looking forward to the sequel and all that stuff. But uh, it's, I think it's just, you know, evolution. And, you know, I, I think it's kind of short-sighted for these people to be saying, I mean, the world that exists now, sure, that's going to die. Well, these kind of, you know, death of cinema things come along every 10 years or so. And, and you know, I, I always think it's helpful to put things like this in a historical context. And and what this this era with the, the 3D CGI-driven blockbusters reminds me most of is the... Uh, the studio musicals of the mid to late sixties where, uh, the Hollywood studios invested more and more money in these big, lavish, really long, uh, really expensive, um, uh, costume epics like, uh, Cleopatra or just musicals, uh, trying to recreate the sound of music in my fair lady with these, these more and more massive hits that just flopped one after the other, after the other, and eventually led to, uh, a kind of uh, not so much a collapse as a reorganization of the studio system where the studios were bought by larger corporations and streamlined and reorganized. And in that gap during the, uh, the reorganization is when the, uh, the so-called new Hollywood popped up with directors like Spielberg and Scorsese and, and Coppola and Lucas um, getting increasing power in the industry and supposedly initiating this golden age of Hollywood cinema, which is, is, uh, referred to as such mostly by the people who were working at that time. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, it, it's always the generation's perspective on it, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, I, I see this as like the latter stages of the, of the studio system where it's just becoming more and more bloated and eventually there will be a crash and a reorganization and maybe, you know, Hollywood's Hollywood studios haven't made good mid range grown up movies for a really long time. And, you know, there's a reason there's, there's always complaints around awards, uh, um, Oscar season that the movies being nominated for awards, nobody has seen because they're these small movies that they don't, that don't play in multiplexes on the same scale as like Pacific Rim will. Mm -hmm. And the reason is just that Hollywood doesn't make movies like that anymore. They, they've shunted off the growing up division of movie making to independence and, uh, semi-independent subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, you know, a movie like Two Lovers isn't a a Hollywood movie. It's produced by Magnolia, which is a, you know, it'd be equivalent in the studio era to something like uh, Republic Pictures or something, just a Poverty Row studio. And it's not that expensive to make, but it, it should have been a moderate hit if it had been marketed better. Absolutely. Um, and if it had played, you know, the problem with, like we said, Two Lovers is... Since there's this synergy with that chain of, you know, Magnolia goes to Landmark and all those things, um, you know, there are landmarks in major cities, but it doesn't play, you know, something like Pacific Rim opens on 4,000 screens or sure. something like that. A fraction of that could be given over to films like Two Lovers. Well, we, we saw an example of, of the fact that, like, a Hollywood product aimed at, at grown-ups can be a hit. Uh, we saw it last year with, uh, with Spielberg's Lincoln. Mm -hmm. It you know it played in mainstream theaters and it 
it made a whole bunch of money. Well, and, and, I every, think, and all the uh, like the box office experts were shocked that Lincoln was a hit. And I'm like, Steven Spielberg making a, a grown-up drama. Why wouldn't people go see that? Oh, and I think uh, Spielberg... That's also, you know, really good. Yeah, I think Spielberg touched on that in his thing with Lucas where he said that originally he couldn't even get financing for Lincoln and it was going to go the same way as Soderbergh. He couldn't get financing. He, 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 said has, was, he runs his own studio. <laughs> he said it was going to be on HBO. Well, he sold DreamWorks, but you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, it's a little silly because, yeah, it's Steven Spielberg. He has more cash than anybody on the planet. But uh, he did make the statement. I'm not telling you if it's true or not. But he said it was going to be another HBO thing like the uh, Michael Douglas, Steven Soderbergh, uh, Liberace thing. Yeah. Um, because studios didn't want to touch it. Well, studios have no interest in, in the middle range of budgets of like the, the 50 to $80 million budgets. There's no, there's no benefit to them for that. Right. Um, it's, it's making the, the $10 million romantic comedy for $70 million that costs the studios money. It's not making the, the $250 million movie that grosses only $200 million. Right. It's, it's that, that middle product that, that, that gives them their most losses because the big, uh, you know, action blockbusters will make a bunch of money overseas and they'll continue to make money on video and, and video on demand. Whereas something like, like two lovers is just going to be forgotten in, in, in two or three years. Right. But unless, those, it, unless it wins a bunch of awards or if it's talked about on the George Sanders show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well tying in with that, speaking of, uh, I just, you know, I've got to clarify things. Uh, now you see me cost 75 million to mm-hmm. make and it, it took two weeks not two days to recoup that, and it's 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 doubled, it's uh, or oh, nearly doubled its budget in in grosses, um, just just to get that out there. So we're all square on that. I don't I don't know anything about that. All I heard is it just got terrible reviews, and it looked like the worst movie ever. When I, saw I have no interest in seeing it, but yeah. it's one of those. It's like a it's like a you know Corky's a little weird for it, but you know it's a movie that. Is not based on, as far as I know, it's not based on a comic book or a you know previously existing thing that went a different route and came out in summer and actually did better business than expected. I'm not. I'm not it talking just, about. It the just looked to me like a like a less misanthropic The Prestige. I I hate The Prestige. <laughs> I really hate that movie. It's I okay. I mean, do we want to talk about Christopher Nolan? No. Okay. We absolutely <laughs> do not want to talk about Christopher. Because I think Nolan. Christopher Nolan is kind of part of the problem here i yeah okay we'll just leave it at that i <laughs> i really do not care for christopher nolan and his his work i much did you did you see the dark knight rises the third one no okay it's really bad yeah it's really bad anyway i'd uh, like to see it just so i can get all those bane voice jokes that <laughs> that i keep hearing it's really bad um the the you know there was that division last year it was like do you side with the Dark Knight Rises, which is like serious and stuff, or do you go for the popcorn fun of the Avengers? I'll take the Avengers any day of the week against The Dark Knight Rises because that movie was stupid. But anywho, um, I think that's basically. I mean, yeah, for me to get excited about a big summer blockbustery kind of thing, I need to have something more than just the explosions. Um, for me, it needs to, you know, it needs to be made by somebody that I trust to a degree, like a Joss Whedon. Um, or a Steven Spielberg, um, you know, Gore Verbinski, I think is really good at that kind of stuff. And the Lone Ranger has, when the Verbinski stuff, uh, creeps into it, particularly in the end of the film, there's this big train scene, which is fun, is really good. And it's, you know, it's definitely worth a watch for that. Um, when I see, you know, really 
capable directors handling stuff like that, it's a lot of fun. But to me, you know, just throwing monsters at robots and stuff, it's not going to get my money. I don't know that the action movie I saw this summer was uh, was the Thirty Nine Steps, which I went to you know just a couple <laughs> nights ago at the uh, the Uptown here in Seattle, and uh, the the theater was packed. There must have been over a hundred people there, you know, mm-hmm. for a, a, a Tuesday night showing of a eighty year old movie. Uh, so I you know I don't think the problem is the audiences. I don't think so either. Yeah. I, I, I think that, totally I think there, agree. There's a there's a there's a hunger. There's money to be made on people who want to watch movies. I, I completely agree with you. Well, uh, segueing from that into something that kind of doesn't really come into the blockbusters that much, unless it's cursory, but uh, this week's Cinema Central uh, theme is tying in with both of our films today. We're going to be talking about Love Triangles, uh, which, you know, it, it, you've seen it in every movie imaginable. Yeah, I was, you know, I was thinking about that when we were talking about Two Lovers, and I can't remember the last time there was like a big mainstream Hollywood romantic drama. Yeah, with like with like big stars, you know, something like uh, like uh, we talked about last week, uh, Out of Africa, with Robert Redford and, and Meryl Streep, and it was this romance film for for grownups that was made in the studio system. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I I I mean, I'm drawing a complete blank <laughs> right now, and you know, I I wonder if it's like a, a cultural thing. We just we don't take romances as seriously as as previous generations do. We're not we're not looking for romantic heroes, and when we do have romantic movies, they're romantic comedies, yes, in the line of like a Woody Allen type thing, mm-hmm. uh, where it's all undercut, or you know, even like the the Judd Apatow romantic comedies, which are not particularly romantic at all. There's there's but very they are they are often funny. Yeah, and there's you know they have. They're flashes of heart or whatever, but they're, yeah, they're far from romantic. Yeah, so I, the essential love triangles I thought of when, when we thought of this, uh, this topic for this episode, all, all are old movies. I couldn't think of anything within the last, you know, 15 years, 20 years. Well, the first movie that came to my mind, and it's not my pick, um, because for me, it's too obvious, and I should just shut up about it anyway. Uh, my first pick was uh, Terrence Malick's The New World which um, is from the last 10 years. Um, but it's not really a love triangle. Well, she... It's, 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 it's two sequential love affairs. Well, this is, this is one of the reasons I didn't pick it. Although, it does come to a head where the two kind of converge and she does have to make a choice in a, in a way. Uh, yeah. But we're not going to talk about that because it's not my pick for the Cinema <laughs> Central uh, love triangle. My pick uh, this week is um, a film that I've seen a few times now, um, and I've always really enjoyed it, but especially when I was thinking about it for this um, discussion here today, it slowly, seductively crept into becoming one of my absolute favorite films, which is, anybody that's seen it it would not be surprised. Um, I'm picking Powell and Pressburger's uh, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Uh, which uh, you and I actually saw together. Blockbuster. Huh? Talk about a blockbuster, I know. Um, you and I saw that at the Film Forum earlier this year, and uh, that was the first time I saw it on the big screen. And well, I big and scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the Film Forum. Yeah, the Film Forum. Uh, their screens have leave a lot to be desired. Uh, you know, I I hate to say it, but anyway, anyway, yeah, the life and death of Colonel Blimp uh, is such a sumptuous film, and it not only does it trace the entire life of its main character it traces 
a century of a country, you know, a country going through uh, growing pains of, of war and, and death and destruction and, and moving into, um, you know, new generations and, and hope and optimism and all these other things. But at the central part of the film is that there are these two men who meet in war. They're from, you know, opposing sides and they become friends and they both fall for the same woman. One of them ends up with her. But then Roger uh, Livesey, he ends up, he's the main star, he's the main character of the film. He does not get the girl, but he spends the rest of his life populated with women who... Who look like her. Look exactly like her and are played by... Deborah Carr. Yeah, the same, the same woman. And it's, it's just a beautiful, devastating, and also hilarious film that I, it's just, there's so many levels to the life and death of Colonel Blimp that it shows you what films are capable of. And this happens a lot with the Archers, Powell and Pressburger stuff. You see it and you're like so overwhelmed by how much they throw into these movies. I mean, you can live in this movie. In a, f- in a few weeks, we're going to talk about, you know, our, our top movies of all time. Because every year around Labor Day, I, I, I do a, a top 100 or, or more list. And in the past, when I have like tried to organize my 100 favorite movies... The top 100 will be filled with like a half dozen Powell and Pressburger films, <laughs> yeah, because they they made so many movies that are that are so good that have um, that have so much in them. They're so rich and detailed. Because yeah. Colonel Blimp, you know, it's it's a love triangle and it, and it's very romantic. It's this romantic story, but there's this whole other level where it's you know the the history of the British military and relations between Britain and Germany and imperial rivalries leading up to World War One or World War Two, and there's all of this you know social commentary about about war and and honor and changing mores for for fighting with the the dawn of World War Two, and the film was made in the midst of World War Two, and and. If you want to get more intimate, it's just it also follows just the life of this one guy, and so yeah, it's like it's like half a dozen movies in one movie, and each one gets enough screen time. You know, I mean, you you are invested in the whole thing, and it, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's unwieldy. It doesn't feel overstuffed, but it's it's so densely packed. Yeah, it's juicy, and it's just so fully realized that you know it's a movie that I feel like it's it's one of those things that you can watch. 20 years down the line, you know, when I watch it and I'm in my 50s or whatever, I will get a totally different experience out of the life and death of Colonel Blimp than I would nowadays. Um, And you can say that about a lot of movies, but this movie in particular, I think, really plays into that kind of passage of time and and how you change as a person um, or also how you stay the same as a person uh, over the course of your life. And I think it's just a phenomenal film. And I was on my way over here as I was driving here. I, (laughs) I told myself... On your way home, you're going to stop at the video store and you're going to buy The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp because I don't know why you don't own it, you jackass. It's fantastic. What is your pick, Sean, for the Cinema Central Love Triangle? Well, I went for, you know, an, an obvious pick, but, you know, this... Drug War. Drug War. <laughs> the Johnny Toe movie. I actually could have picked a Johnny Toe movie, but I did not. Oh, but uh, thanks for sparing you know, our his, listeners. His 2011 film "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" is a really pretty great uh, love triangle film. I, I need to see it. It also has a, a lot of commentary about you know the economic collapse and anyway. Uh, <laughs> I went for the for the obvious pick, which is uh, Jean Renoir's uh, "Rules of the Game," mm-hmm. which when you say love triangle movies, that's the movie that I think of. I think it is the the quintessential love triangle mm-hmm. film, and it's. Uh, Mostly set at a uh, at a country estate 
run by a, a rich French guy and his wife. And they have their servants and they have their friends and they all come for like rabbit hunting and they put on a show. And there are, there are two main love triangles. There's the, the, um, the mansion owner's wife who, you know, loves her husband and also loves this aviator who is in love with her. Um, and later we find out that a character named, uh, or played by Renoir himself is also in love with this woman. So it actually turns from a love triangle into a, a love, uh, rhombus. Uh, but there's also uh, the wife's servant who is loved by, you know, her husband, who's the gamekeeper on the estate, and he's uh, a bit of a mustachioed lout, and uh, he catches a poacher who's uh, uh, a very kind of chaplain-esque figure who falls for the wife, and the wife likes her. So there's this, this second love triangle that mirrors the first with the servants and the rich people, and everyone is all, you know, very, very decadent and... The, the great thing about Renoir's movies is that he, he sympathizes with everyone and you see, you see everyone's point of view and you get like a, a real understanding. And that's the, the key line of, of Renoir's career and, and the movie itself is, um, I think it's something that, that Renoir himself says late in the film. It's um, lamenting kind of the, the complications of, of these love lives is, is uh, that the terrible thing is that everyone has their reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's that, yeah, you know, you can see everyone's point of view and, and that's what makes it hard is that nobody's really wrong and nobody's really right is everyone has their own reasons. And it, you know, it takes, it's, it's a very rare filmmaker that can kind of capture that, that totality of the human experience to where you see that everyone does have their reasons and, you know, just kind of that expansive sympathy and empathy with human beings. It's a great pick. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is. Uh, quintessential in so many ways, not just love triangle. I mean, you know, it it absolutely is. Uh, that's a fantastic pick. Um, Thank you. Another pick that I you're, you're welcome, Sean. Congratulations, uh, I approve. Um, another pick that would also be just uh, quintessential uh, would be Jules and Jim, which uh, is directed by Francois Truffaut, who is our person of the week. Yes. Let's uh, talk about Francois Truffaut. Uh, Truffaut's an, uh, an interesting figure, of course. That's why he's our person of the week. Um, he first became famous as a film critic, along with uh, you know several other other members of uh, what would become known as the French New Wave. He started at the uh, the film journal uh, Cahiers de Cinema in the 1950s, and uh, he's most famous for this article he published attacking the uh, the current uh, French studio system, which was these uh, kind of uh, uh, middle-brow literary adaptations that he thought very dull and lifeless. And so he, he advocated for a, a politic of auteurs where you would celebrate uh, directors like John Ford or Howard Hawks or Alfred Hitchcock who, you know, made films in, in low genres, but they put their personal stamps on it as the idea was that film should be a, a vehicle for personal expression, not for you know, and, uh, fancy, you know, adaptations of literary works. It's such an obvious idea now that's so ingrained in almost every film goers, you know, viewing right. experience. And he didn't really, you know, invent the idea that, you know, directors are important and that personal expression is important. He just formulated it in a very strident way. And, and, and it's, it's really what made it gain traction, you yeah. know? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't the first, but it was really, you know, the explosion as it were of, yeah. of that. 
Yeah, and what what helped the the ideas gain traction is that these these critics working for Coyote Cinema then started making movies, and the movies were radically different from what people had seen before, and they became very popular, uh, especially in the United States, as as uh, the kind of art house theaters started to get going in the late 1950s. They would show movies from from Truffaut and Jean Luc Godard and Claude Chabrol and and you know various other new wave type directors like Alain René or Jacques Demy, and then you know directors from other countries as well, Fellini, Antonioni, Ingmar Bergman. And it was just kind of this whole flowering of world cinema and its reception in the United States. Well, with the rise of, like, the counterculture of the beats and, you know, on into, like, the, the folk scene stuff. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, you hear Bob Dylan talking about seeing the Dolce Vita on, yep. you know, his, his early records and stuff. Yeah, it's kind of a generational shift. Mm-hmm. Even though the, the new wave directors are older than the baby boomers, they were making movies for that generation. Absolutely. And, Kind of into the 1960s, the they begin to split apart, and and Truffaut famously split with Godard after you know they had been very close friends and collaborators in in the early 1960s. They had a falling out, and it mostly had to do with with as I understand it, mostly had to do with Godard uh, faulting Truffaut for not being as politically committed as Godard wanted to be. Yeah, uh, it, yes, exactly. Uh, Godard became in, increasingly political um, as the 60s wore on, and Truffaut, I think, I, I don't know the exact quote, but he, you know, he said, I just want to make movies. I mean, that was his main focus. Yeah, uh, one of the, the first serious books of film criticism I ever bought and... and uh, and actually read was was Francois Truffaut's The Films of My Life, which is a collection of, of some of his work, not just as a, a critic in the 1950s, but also later on in his life as he became a filmmaker, he continued to write articles about movies. And there's this great quote in it that I used in about half the papers I wrote in college. And he says that, um, when I was a critic, I thought that a successful film had to simultaneously express an idea of the world and an idea of the cinema. Today, I demand that a film expresses either the joy of making cinema or the agony of making cinema. I'm not at all interested in anything in between. I'm not interested in all those films that do not pulse. And that kind of gets at the split with with Godard, because Mm -hmm. Godard is very much, uh, you have to have an idea of the cinema, and you have to have an idea of the world. Your film has to be politically committed, and it has to say something interesting about film as a form. But Truffaut is not interested in that. He He doesn't care about politics anymore. What he wants is is to make movies that have a pulse, that 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 breathe, that uh, depict a real world and real people in them, and that kind of, of humanism and human interest. That's beneath Jean Luc Godard. Like, he's <laughs> not concerned with like the day to day goings on, and you know that's and, you know I'm kind of simplifying both both directors there, but I think that was kind of the crux of their of their disagreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a lot of film fans fall along the same lines. They're, you're either a Truffaut guy or a Godard guy. So I gotta, I gotta ask you, are you a Truffaut or a Godard? It's an interesting question, and I was thinking about it on the way here, and I knew it was going to come up during this conversation because you, you really cannot separate Truffaut from Godard um, because of their early collaborations together um, and the work they did, and then the split. Um, a few years later, um, to me, I think I gun to my head. I would say Godard because there, I think the highs of Godard are higher than anything Truffaut has done. Um, there are moments in Godard's films that exhilarate me more than anything else. Um, but that being said, every time I watch a Truffaut movie, like I, I just watched uh, Two English Girls today, um, and 
I love Truffaut's films. I, I and it's they're totally different filmmakers. They really are. They they approach their their uh, material both, both differently, in, both in subject and in, in yeah, film style. The subjects are totally different too. Um, and I think I actually consistently uh, enjoy Truffaut's films more, and I I love them more on the whole because. Godard, intentionally so, can be very frustrating, where you see this talent, and he kind of intentionally shoots himself in the foot a lot. Like in Weekend, he will take the last third of the film and turn it into this political screed, and it makes it tedious, and intentionally so, because he ends it saying, end of cinema, and, you know, we're yeah, good here. He, Godard's not interested in giving you the basic narrative pleasures of movies. Yeah, and, and that's why I think... Truffaut's films are more enjoyable on the whole, and I I think I have better overall experiences with them. But when I think of cinema, I think of you know the machine gun rat-a-tat shots in uh, something like uh, Masculine Feminine or uh, you know Band of Outsiders or something like that, um, and all you know just that enthusiasm that's just like emanating from the screen, which no one else has ever been able to capture the same way Godard does. Um, so I think I just gave you a total non-answer because I think I picked both of them. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, my answer, am I a Truffaut or a Godard? Yeah. I'm a roamer. <laughs> You're such a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> Honestly, for, for, for years and years, I, I would say I was a Godard. Like, I, I've, I've seen, you know, maybe a half dozen Truffaut movies, and and I like them. Uh, Shoot the Piano Player is my favorite Me of too. Truffaut's films. It's also the most Godardian. Me too. Yeah. Uh, I, I love The 400 Blows. It's a great. It's probably the one I've seen the most. I've seen it three or four times. Uh, Jules and Jim, though, I I never I never warmed to. I didn't I didn't think it was all that that exciting. Uh, Day for Night, I only saw dubbed. Fahrenheit 451, I saw in college in like a communications class split over like an hour uh, over like two or three different uh, class sessions. Um, that is not the way to watch a movie. The Wild Child I liked a lot. That's another one I saw in an actual film class so we watched the whole movie. But other than that I haven't, I haven't seen much Truffaut. Um, he's fine. He never. He's never really excited me the way the way Godard did. I agree. The, the excitement is not there. Um, but... For some reason, and we will discuss it more when we get to Two English Girls, there's something in the films, um, and this kind of goes to what I was saying about uh, Colonel Blimp earlier, um, where I can I can really live in these worlds, and, and I think Jules and Jim is, a, is actually a good example of that, where you kind of just linger with these characters over the course of this, this movie, and I... For me, Jules and Jim, I, I really respond to that film. Uh, I actually think 400 Blows... I don't want to say overrated because that's just silly, but um, I I don't have the same response most people do to Four Hundred Blows. I like it just fine, um, but I if I try and rank stuff, it's definitely not the top of my list um, of of his work. Um, I actually think the film we will be discussing later uh, is better than Four Hundred Blows, but that's just me. <laughs> um, but I but I've seen like you, I've seen far more Godard stuff than I have. I mean, part of that is that Godard was making. Uh, two or three films a year. Uh, yeah, he had he had you know. There's just a lot more movies to see. Yeah, but I've had the the Anton Duanel box set mm -hmm. that Criterion put out for for years, and I still haven't watched the last two movies. Yeah, I, I really like I really loved the four you know the Four Hundred Blows. I really like Stolen Kisses. I don't really remember all that much of it, but the latter two I just 
just hasn't come up. I just haven't watched him. Yeah, I you and, know. and you know all of his uh, most of his other movies are available on on Hulu Plus on the the Criterion Channel, and I haven't uh, made the time to watch any of them either. Like the Last Metro or uh, the Green Room. Yeah, it's, I've seen the Last Metro come through the library often, and I, I'm always like soon, and then I don't. You know, um, well if you're Romero, I'm gonna I'm gonna be cool. I'm gonna be Jacques Rivette. So take that, Sean. <laughs> Uh, well, with that, let's uh, let's hear a clip from uh, Two English Girls, and then let's talk about it. That sounds like an excellent plan. Why not? Anne Brown était la fille d'une amie de jeunesse de la mère de Claude. Elle vint souvent rendre visite aux jeunes Français. Ils échangeaient des livres et reprenaient à chaque conversation les choses où ils les avaient laissées. Anne avait une vocation, la sculpture. Après une courte résistance, elle s'est prise d'Auguste Rodin, qui n'était pas connu en Angleterre. Un jour, Anne révéla qu'elle avait une sœur, Muriel, de deux ans plus jeune qu'elle. Elle ne trouva en fouillant dans son sac qu'une vieille photo de Muriel à 10 ans. Le visage rond, la bouche sévère, les sourcils bien nets et dans son regard quelque chose de farouche. Venez la voir, proposa Anne qui ajouta, c'est avec Muriel que je voudrais vous entendre parler. Je suis sûre que vous n'avez plus besoin de ça. Tenez. All that French talking you just heard was a clip from Two English Girls, Francois Truffaut's 1971 film that is an adaptation of the other novel by Jules and Jim author Henri Pierre Rocher. Uh, it, like that, like that other novel and that other film, is about a love triangle, uh, except this time the genders are reversed. In Jules and Jim, they are both in love with Jean Moreau, and in Two English Girls, uh, Jean-Pierre Léo is in love with these two uh, actually Welsh women that he meets that he calls English for some reason. <laughs> and he, uh, he meets them in France and then he goes to stay with them in Wales and he hangs out with them and he falls in love with one of them. But the other one, uh, but that one wants him to fall in love with her sister. So they get engaged, but then their mothers decide to send them to separate them for a year. So Leo goes back to France. The, uh, the one sister, Muriel, uh, stays in England, and uh, Leo discovers the joys of, of having sex with multiple women. So he does that. If he breaks off the engagement, she gets very upset, and then he starts dating her sister, who is now a sculptress living in, in Paris, and they have lots of sex. They do. And then they break up, and he goes back to Muriel. And then the plot gets further complicated from there. So, Mike, you, you loved this movie. Tell me, tell me why... What you loved about Two English Girls? I really did like this movie. I uh, at first I was a little put off, um, maybe because it was kind of languid, and they spend a lot of time um, at this Welsh home in, in the summer and stuff. But as the movie played on, I really got invested in some of the characters. I'll say. Maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, and I, and I did like to see the progression of, and you know, it takes place over the course of most of the movie is seven years. And then there's a, you know, at the end there's flash forwards to 15 years. There's a a post-World War one coda. Yeah. A little coda to it. Um, but most of it is seven years, but, and, and, uh, it really spends its time with these characters during that period. And we see the evolution of them, um, particularly the English girls, uh, of the title, uh, misnomer as it is, and the 
more free-spirited sister that he originally has a crush on and who becomes a sculptress and stuff. You know, she really blossoms uh, in this movie later on. Um, and it's very interesting to see her, you know, she, she was always prim and proper, not so much as much as Muriel is, who through the entire movie is very uh, repressed. repressed. I mean, that's the, that's the word for it. Um, but she goes on this journey and Muriel does too, to an extent, because she, you know, she would have been happy to be a spinster her entire life. And then, you know, Claude showing up kind of throws a wrench in those gears and, and it really messes with her. Um, and it's interesting to see how devastated she becomes over the course of this story as he, you know, kind of, he agrees to wed her in a year. Then he goes off, you know, sleeps with her sister, uh, among other things and and breaks it off with her and she just gets devastated and she's fragile and all this stuff and I was just completely wrapped up in this thing and I felt like Truffaut really captured uh, the crises of these characters and uh, and he really gave you the full view of everything you know you got the you you got to like I said earlier live in the picture and and really take your time with the story um, and I think that early s section where they are on at the home over the summer, I believe it is, when he's visiting them, it's such a quiet and uh, intimate period, and, and it really makes all these connections that play out later uh, worthwhile and, and very interesting. Yeah, it gives it a, a you know a kind of solid foundation as they off, go off and become more more libertine and adventurous, uh, and as the plot gets more lurid. Yes. Uh, what really struck me about the movie was, um, was just how literary it is. And, it's, yes. And, um, in this sense, you know, I, yeah, I mentioned with the, the, the Godard Truffaut, uh, conundrum that, that I'm a Romer and, and this <laughs> film seems very much to me like, like a, an Eric Romer film. Uh, not just because the the cinematography by Nestor Almendros, who um, uh, he shot uh, Days of Heaven, Terrence Malick's movie, but he also worked with with uh, Romer for a long time. It looks like a Romer movie. The the kind of plot, the relations between between a man and multiple women, is very much the kind of thing that that Romer was exploring at at the same time with his uh, uh, Six Moral Tales movies like Claire's Knee or My Night at Mods. Um, but also just kind of the literary nature of the movie, how, how much of it is, is, um, is in dialogue. Now, Truffaut has a very different approach to it. He uses like actual narration where Truffaut himself reads passages from, from the novel and just kind of narrating Henri-Pierre Rocher's words over the, the actions of the characters, kind of telling you what they're thinking and what they're feeling. But even the characters themselves are, are very narrated. They see themselves as, as literary figures. They're all constantly writing in letters or journals. And, and eventually um, books. And, yeah, eventually a, a book. Uh, Leo's character writes the novel Jules and Jim, which is a, a thinly veiled version of his relationship with, uh, with uh, Muriel and Anne. So this, there's this kind of uh, mediating of life through, through art and literature that is, is, you know, very similar to what Truffaut kind of advocated for way back, you know, in, in the 1950s when he's talking about the, the politic of auteurs, where, you know, the, the film is a vehicle for personal expression. And so he's, you know, adapting this idea of cinema into this very literary idea of film. Well, the film, 
opens, I mean, literally the opening credit sequence of the film is showing the book that the film is based on um, from a number of different angles. And it's actually a really cool credit sequence. I thought it was really awesome. Uh, it, it felt new wavy. The film doesn't really feel much like the new wave, like the early new wave stuff, although there are some moments, particularly later in the film, where he does some editing stuff that... Uh, well, throughout the film, he uses irises as punctuations at the end of the scene, and, mm -hmm. and, and iris is when, like, the... The, the screen goes black all for a, a ever-shrinking circle and it, the circle focuses in on like one you know thing and it's a very old old film technique from like the earliest days of silent cinema and roughly contemporaneous with the the time period the story is taking place um the last time i saw it in a picture it departed okay <laughs> but yeah yeah uh, he does and then and he he used that much more in in wild child which which is in a lot of ways told like a silent movie and that was the film he made right before this. But, um, yeah, it's not as, like, meta-cinematic as, like, a, a Godard movie or even something like uh, Shoot the Piano Player. But even Godard movies are, are very literary, like, literally literary in that he will put words on the screen yes. all the time. And, and Truffaut doesn't really do that so much in this one, although he puts books on the screen and, and fills it with, with paintings and photographs and, and statues. And the characters are always surrounded by art. It's, it's much more grounded in just kind of the world that they're living in as opposed to, like, a dart as a, some off-screen presence imposing views on art on a story. And that's what I meant by saying living in this movie is that you experience this in a totally different way than you would something like a Godard or, or earlier Truffaut stuff, uh, you know, Shoot the Piano Player or something like that, where um, even though there's this constant narration um, from Truffaut and, and all of these things... Um, it's it's a movie that lets you in as opposed you know you see if you see a band of outsiders or something like that you're watching it somewhat detached even though you're having a great interaction with the film itself you're not necessarily in the film but in, in here you really are coexisting with these characters in a, in a lot of new wave movies and and especially in in films by directors who are influenced by the new wave, it seems like the the characters in the film live in movie worlds. Mm -hmm. Like they 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 exist as characters in a film. Um, Band of Outsiders is kind of like that, but you see it in in Martin Scorsese movies, Quentin Tarantino movies, certainly Wong Kar Wai movies. It's it's a, a an extra cinematic world. But the characters in in Two English Girls and like the characters in in Eric Romer films seem like they live in books, not movies. So it's it's a very different kind of style of of filmmaking, and it's, it's a different approach to to world creation. Yeah, and and you know both ways are great. They can you know it, it depends what you're going for and how you're trying to to uh, you know tell your story and stuff. And I feel like w watching those more cinematic ones give me more of a thrill, as we were discussing earlier when we were talking about the Godard-Truffaut, you know, uh, comparisons and, and what have you. Um, but th the films like this one, I think I kind of live with longer in the long run, um, where it, it kind of sticks with me more. I mean, I, I can't really say much for this one since I watched it this morning for the first time. <laughs> we'll see. We can check back in in a year or two or what, what have you. Um, but whereas with a, a more cinematic one, it's these fleeting moments that stick with you. This one is more of the the world and the impressions that you get and and the emotions and all of these you know connected things that linger long after the film is over. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I mentioned that I, I thought this was like the midpoint between like Godard and Romer, and, and I want to get back to that because sure. uh, a comparison with with Eric Romer is is I think uh, elucidates why I'm not quite as high on this movie as you are, and it's that Eric Romer movies are are much more relaxed. They they don't have irises. They don't have you know direct address shots. There's not a lot of wacky editing. It's all it's very leisurely paced. There's long scenes of characters talking. It's it's very relaxed, and the world is built through like slow accumulation of detail. Whereas uh, Godard will constantly be in your face. He wants you to be aware that you're watching a movie. And Truffaut does that to some extent too with, with the irises and with uh, like Muriel reading her, uh, her um, letter to, to Leo it is directly facing the camera. Um, and it's much more, you know, directly uh, ostentatious and calling attention to itself. And I prefer the the relaxed pace of the Eric Romer movie. As I've gotten older, when I when I was young, I I loved the Godard, but now I find that that I'm much more impressed by by Romer's ability to to just slowly make a realistic world. Every time I finish watching an Eric Romer movie, I want to watch all the Eric Romer movies. Yep. And you know, after watching Two English Girls, I was like, that's good. That was a good movie. <laughs> I enjoyed that, but I didn't feel that, you know, like extra special sense that this was like a magical creation. Sure. And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't put it up there with uh, my favorites of of the new wave directors stuff. Um, Probably my favorite of, well, you know, I think something like Celine and Julie go boating or something is... uh, the, well, Rivet is on a whole other <laughs> plane. But anyway... He's, he's not really part of this continuum. I, I, I understand. I, I was going off on a tangent. But um, what I actually liked about this film um, is, you know, those those little new wave touches that do creep in, especially there's the, um, the scene near the end um, where um, Muriel falls down and she faints or something. She hits her head on a, on a ladder or something and yeah. Anne comes to, um, to help her. And it's the only time where he does like the jump cut, like the, you know, he cuts out a couple of frames as he's going to it and stuff. And like you said, Godard's constantly slapping you in the face. I mean, for 90 minutes, he will just be full throttle. And it's, Truffaut shows you that it's, it's actually more effective to do stuff like that if you do it, you know, sparingly, because that's the only time it happens in this movie. And it, yeah, it definitely feels like an artificial thing in a, in a movie that is mostly, you know, trying to, um, be, you know, realistic to a degree. Um, but I, I find that stuff really cool when it, when it does just pop up for a second and then go back and, you know, like a Jack in the box or something, you know? Yeah. And you know, I, I love viruses. I <laughs> the shot of an iris in a movie and I'm like, I'm, I'm on your wavelength. Right. I'm with this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will be interested to see how I, I think of this movie further on down the line, like I said. Um, my initial reaction was I was just totally on board with the story. And uh, let me ask you this, because we did uh, kind of talked about this with Two Lovers. In both films, Two Lovers and Two English Girls, there is the one woman who's more, you know, chaste. Uh, and virginal or whatever, and then you have the the a little more erratic one and the one that's willing to take chances and stuff. Um, both films are very, you know, the, the two sets of two women are are different um, in in the two films, um, but they can, they could be split down those lines. Did you side with one set of women 
when you watch these movies or did you split the difference like I did? For example, for me in Two Lovers, I'm like Joaquin Phoenix needs to be with, uh, uh, with Vanessa Shaw. Vanessa Shaw. It needs to be with Vanessa Shaw. Uh, this Gwyneth Paltrow girl, she's a no good. Let's get, you know, cut her out. But then in Two English Girls, I'm like, oh, Muriel's a buzzkill. You know, you don't, want, you don't want anything to do with her. And obviously the film's are steering you in certain directions and manipulating you towards certain things. But I find it interesting that, you know, in one film I'm going for the, the safe choice. And then in the other film I'm going for the, a little more erratic choice. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, a difference in a difference in the, the, uh, the characterization of what the, the safe choice is. Yes. Like Muriel is, uh, is much more of a Victorian woman and she's from a relic from an earlier era. Um, whereas Anne is, is more modern and, and adventurous, but that's not really the, the split in two lovers. It's more of like a, a home versus risk, mm-hmm. you know, safety versus adventure kind of, kind of split. Like there's not the, the Vanessa Shaw home doesn't seem as repressive as the Muriel Victorian era was. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, it is, you know, two English girls does, deal with that divide and, and how uh, times they are a change in, so to speak, you know, um, whereas Two Lovers is much more contained in a shorter period of time and it doesn't deal with um, bigger societal things. But, you know, <laughs> it does it does kind of address the the, the immigrant experience because, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is, is American. She's blonde and she's crazy, whereas <laughs> Vanessa Shaw is, you know, the nice Jewish girl. So... You know, there is a, a kind of transitional element to uh, to the contrast between the two women. It, maybe not temporal, but but culturally, for sure. Sure, absolutely. Well, and you know, Claude uh, Leo's character here, he's you know much more progressive, and he's he's willing. You know, he wants. You know, he tells Anne, "It's okay if you have different lovers or what have you and stuff." And he's willing right. to go. He has this idea of of free love that he is going to follow. But at the same time, you do see that it does affect him. And yeah, it makes him miserable. Yeah. But he's going to stick by his right. idea because yeah. he's a young man who thinks things. <laughs> I was struck by how how female-dominated the world was. Uh, Claude is really the only male figure in the movie. None of the, Neither he nor the girls have a, a father. They're both being raised and, and steered by their mothers. Uh, the, the marriage contract is worked out by mothers. There's only, uh, I think, two other men in the main cast, and one is a, a later boyfriend of, of Anne's, and the other is like an old man who's the neighbor of the, the two girls. So it's very much this female-dominated world that Leo finds himself in, that he like, it, you know, comes up with his theories on, on free love to, to express. So, you know, it's an unusual characterization of this kind of Victorian Edwardian era, which is, is you know, very restrictive in a, in a patriarchal world. Absolutely. That's not the way Truffaut shows it to be at all. Does not, no. And that may, you know, that may be like a, a bio, uh, straight from the book from Henri Pierre Rocher. I'm not sure. It might just be, uh, you know, Truffaut's own thing growing up as the, the child of a, a single mother. And he had like a, a stepfather, a series of stepfathers. I'm not really sure. But um, he's always just seemed much more interested in, in the world of women than the world of men. Yeah, absolutely. One of the men that appears in this movie in a very minor role, I want to bring up because, not for his acting ability, because he's, he's in it for just a second and he doesn't really do much, uh, but uh, 
George Delarue, who was the composer uh, for this film, and is also responsible for probably my favorite piece of music composed for a film. Sorry, Morricone, but uh, he, he created the theme for Camille in uh, Godard's Contempt, which is so phenomenal and so integral to that film. I mean, it plays constantly. I mean, Godard plays it on a loop through the entire film, which I think is just hypnotic and amazing. I can see some people, like my girlfriend, being annoyed by it. Um, but uh, he, he does similar music in this, where it's very beautiful, kind of lilting stuff with a really haunting quality to it, and it works perfectly for this story and, and is a great complement to the, the imagery, like you said. Uh, the cinematography is gorgeous and, and really well done, and the music really uh, complements that. So you're you're definitely a, a Delarue. I'm a Michelle Legrand. <laughs> you're such a contrarian. I just, for me, to actually bring it back to Scorsese for a second, uh, Scorsese uses uh, Camille's theme in Casino, yeah. I think, a couple of times in a really interesting way. I think uh, Sharon Stone's getting beat up or something. He's playing it over that. Yeah, uh, Noah Baumbach's recent movie, Francis Ha, uses a lot of uh, George Delarue. Oh, does not Yeah. Hmm. I, I still... That, that might make me check it out. That was my big blockbuster of the summer was Francis Hall. <laughs> uh, anyway, on that note, <laughs> you're a witty we're one. We're going to wrap this up and we'll uh, listen to some more of the Meat Puppets. What's the... Uh, the next song is Split one? Myself in Two off of the album Meat Puppets 2. Ah. Can you believe it's been 20 years since they appeared on MTV's Unplugged with Nirvana? Sigh. And, you know, I used to have Meat Puppets too. Uh, at least I thought I did. I had the box. I borrowed it from a friend of mine. But uh, uh, when I opened up the CD, it was actually the Cranberries debut album. So I, <laughs> I don't actually own Meat Puppets too. But I do have Everyone Else Is Doing It, but like, so why can't we? Well, you know, that's really a sad trade-off. Uh, Meat Puppets 2 is, uh, I think, you know, is one of the most essential records of the 80s um, and came out in 84, on SST, which I think SST Records in 1984 was the greatest record label on the planet because they released Me Puppets 2, Husker uh, Du's Zen Arcade, and um, Black Flag's My War, and 
Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, which is one of the greatest records ever made by anybody on the planet. But anyway. That sounds great. I haven't heard any of those records. <laughs> but one pop star from the 1980s I do know is David Bowie. And if you are in the New York area, you need to go to the Film Society at Lincoln Center and check out the David Bowie on film series they got going on. They got they got music videos. They got... Uh, they got your uh, Tony Scott, The Hunger. They got your uh, The Prestige, Christopher <laughs> Nolan. There's I'm, also the uh, the Ziggy Stardust concert movie. And uh, my recommendation is you need to go out on uh, either Saturday the 3rd or Wednesday the 7th to see Nagisa Oshima's Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is uh, it's a kind of variation on the Bridge on the River Kwai story with David Bowie as a, a prisoner in a Japanese prison camp, World War II. Um, also stars uh, Takashi um, Takashi Kitano and uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto, who was a big pop star in Japan at the time. And it's a really great movie and a great performance from Bowie. Awesome. Well, speaking of Japan, my pick uh, this week is uh, Kurosawa's High and Low, which is playing uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia at the Cinematheque uh, August 8th and 9th. And it's uh, one of my favorite Kurosawa films. Um, and, you know, well, you talked about this on your other podcast. You, you, you've been talking about the non-samurai films, right? Yeah, so, yeah, we did Kurosawa. A, a Kurosawa episode Yeah, where we did not talk about High and Low, but we kept uh, wanting to talk about High and Low because it was much better than the movies we actually <laughs> And that's what I was going to say is, I mean, I don't want to necessarily split uh, Kurosawa into samurai films and non-samurai films because why? That's just silly. But, uh, but High and Low is, of his contemporary films, probably second after Kiru for me. It's I, I really really like high and low yeah it's it's one of his his very best movies yeah um, with a great performance in, in out uh, out of uh Tashiro Mifune in the uh the main role yeah it was very very outside of his you know crazy samurai mode exactly I was just about to say that people that just know him from his performances in something like Seven Samurai or Rashomon or something should really see um the range of this guy by seeing high and low because he's very subdued and and just magnetic and really awesome in that film all right so uh that's going to be it for this week next week we will be back we're going to talk about logan's run wally we're going to talk our uh, favorite uh, most essential animated films of the 21st century that were not produced by disney or pixar that's right which you know there's a wide range of options there and uh, our person of the week is going to be uh, Andrew Stanton, the Andrew director Stanton. of Wally and uh, Finding Nemo and some other stuff. Should I should I watch John Carter before we record that? You should not watch John Carter no. under any circumstances. Uh, we'll talk about John Carter next week. It's it, it like the Lone Ranger. It it had uh, potential and it was squandered. I wanted to see it. Yeah, I, I but I have not. We'll we'll talk about it then. Uh, I would also like to announce before we head out the door tonight. Um, that last week I we had a contest to see who could first the first person to crack the anagram of my review of sneakers uh, would get a pick a film for us to talk about on a, on a future show um, and our biggest fan uh, our only fan my younger brother Christopher uh, cracked the code at work uh, he sent me pictures of his uh, copious notes of him trying to crack this code um, and while we were recording this show today. He cracked it. The The anagram was Toy Company, My Ass, which is a, a line spoken at the end of the film uh, in Sneakers. Anyway, so the prize is my brother got to pick a film for us to discuss on a future show, and he has announced that we will be talking about Point Break. 
and I think we'll schedule that in about two weeks or so. So congratulations, Christopher. Well done. Maybe we'll have future things in the future that... Uh, future things in the future. I just that, said that other family members that listen to the show can, <laughs> yeah. can win contests. Yes. That'll be great. Your, your wife will make us watch. What's your wife's favorite movie? Princess Bride. Okay. We could do a point break Princess Bride double feature. Uh, anyway. That would violate the theme of the show. It That's really would. new movies. Yeah. And for those future contests, you can find us on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show. You can email us at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. And you can always check out our website, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Take it away, George. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome It's a dreidel. <laughs> I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. You're so pretty and blonde. <laughs> I love you. I have a website called Goopy. Is it called Goopy? I have no idea. Probably. I think it is. It's really <laughs> stupid like that.